The reading is from Psalm 84. For the choir director on the Giddeth, a psalm of the sons of Korah. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord of armies. I long and yearn for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh cry out for the living God. Even a sparrow finds a home and a swallow for a nest for herself where she places her young. Near your altars, Lord of armies, my King and my God. How happy are those who reside in your house, who praise you continually. Salah. Happy are the people whose strength is in you, whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a source of spring water. Even the autumn rain will cover it with blessings. They go from strength to strength. Each appears before God in Zion. Lord God of armies, hear my prayer. Listen, God of Jacob. Salah. Consider our shield, God. Look on the face of your anointed one. Better a day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of my God than live in the tents of wicked people. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord grants favor and honor. He does not withhold the good from those who live with integrity. Happy is the person who trusts in you, Lord of armies. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Jason. Good morning, everyone. My name is Eric, one of the pastors here at Trinity, um, our other pastor, Eric, my, uh, my partner and teammate. He is out with the flu, so you can pray for him. He's probably not feeling so good right now. Um, for this season of Lent, we've been looking at the Psalms. Our series is called The Anatomy of the Soul because the Psalms, cover, they cover every part of human experience. They show us what prayer and worship look like in every conceivable human emotion and what it looks like to bring all of that to God in prayer and worship. So the Bible teaches that God, he sees and knows everything about us. And in the Psalms, They're like a mirror, like a spiritual x-ray mirror of sorts that he's given to us to show us what's going on inside of us. The Psalms give us the language, the vocabulary, and even the permission, not only to become aware of what's happening inside of us, but to express these things aloud to God in prayer and in worship. So the more that we learn to pray and worship God as the Psalms show us, not only do we become more self-aware, not only do we become more honest people and spiritually healthy, but the closer and the more connected we become to God. So that's, that's why we're doing this series. And we've been covering all sorts of, of parts of the soul, all kinds of different emotions from restlessness to anger and anxiety. This morning, the psalm is Psalm 84, 
And if you look at the psalm and you heard it, you heard it read, the, the question here is what part of the soul does this psalm describe? If you heard a song with these words, how lovely are you? I long and I yearn for you. My heart, my flesh, my everything cries out to you. My heart is set on coming to you. One day with you is better than 1,000 days with anyone else. I'd rather be with you, just standing at your door looking in than any other place. If you heard that song, if you heard that poem, what would you say that poem is? I was thinking about that. I said, that, that sounds like a 1990s R&B song. <laughs> That's a really good love song. He would say, this person is lovesick. But what is the psalmist lovesick for here? It's home, right? How lovely is your dwelling place. I long and I yearn for the courts of the Lord. How happy are those who reside in your house. I'd rather have one day standing at just the doorway of your house than anything else. He's homesick. And Psalm 84 is a prayer about our homesickness. Now, at first we might say, okay, yeah, homesickness, it's, it's something we, we might feel from time to time when we move to a new place, when we're on a long trip away from home and we really just can't wait to get back home. Sometimes when we're nostalgic and we're looking at old pictures and we have old memories come up, we'd say, homesickness, yeah, that's when that happens. It's an occasional emotion and maybe it's kind of a secondary emotion that we feel. But Psalm 84 goes way beyond this. Homesickness this longing and yearning to be home is one major theme of this psalm, but happiness is the other major theme. Three times, if you noticed, throughout the psalm, the Hebrew word for true happiness is used. The word is ashrei. It means true joy. Sometimes it's translated blessedness. It's the Hebrew word for truly happy. Verse 4, verse 5 in verse 12, happy are those who live in God's house, happy are those whose heart is set on pilgrimage to God's house, and happy are those who trust in the Lord, who are on the way home. Psalm 84 says, homesickness and happiness, true happiness, are bound together. They're inseparable in the human soul. We can't be truly happy unless we're truly home. And so the, this feeling of homesickness then is our most reliable guide toward finding true happiness. How so? Well, I hope to show you how Psalm 84 says how these things are connected this morning. We have three uh, points this morning. They're loosely based on those three references to happiness. Who are the happy ones? Happy are those, one, who know where home is. Two, who go on the journey home. And thirdly, who remember what home will be like. So first, happy are those who know where home really is. It's one of the main things the psalm teaches is you can't be truly happy unless you know what home really is and you know where 
home really is. Otherwise, you're lost. You'll be wandering. You'll be searching and unhappy. So let me ask all of you this morning, um, where's home for you? Where's home? For, for most of us, it's not really an easy question to answer, is it? Is it where I was born? Is it where I grew up? Is it where I live now? Or is it, is it my dream place where I hope to live one day? That's really home. And even if you've lived in the same place your entire life, it's changed a lot over the years. So is, it, is home how it used to be like? Or is home the way it is today and now? If you're taking notes, let me just ask you to do this. Home is fill in the blank. Now for me, I'm not sure. Is home Jacksonville, Florida, where I grew up? Jacksonville, Florida is a real place, in case you're wondering. There are p- people live there. And this, uh, this week, as I was preparing this message, I decided to look up my old childhood home on Google Maps, 2780 Wind Rock Drive. You can Google it right now if you want to see where I grew up. I did it, and I was looking at it, and I looked at the picture, and I was like, wow, all these feelings and memories started welling up. I was remembering playing baseball in the backyard. I was remembering skating on, on the street and grinding on the, uh, on the gutter, you know, for those of you who know what skating is. I, I wasn't a real skater, but I could grind on a gutter. Um, so I was looking at it in Google Maps and in Street View, and all these memories started flooding back. I don't know if that's home, though. Could it be San Diego, where our family lived for ten and a half years? Sometimes that feels like home. Or is it is it here now, where we live in Orange County, and in Tustin? I have to say, I don't know. They all feel like home in different ways to me. I don't know about you. Verses uh, one and two in the Psalm they start off by saying, "The psalmist says, I know where my real home is." My real and true home is God's dwelling place. How lovely is your dwelling place? At the, at the time that this psalm was written, this referred to a specific place, the temple in Jerusalem. It was known as the place where God dwells, his house, his heavenly, uh, his, the reflection of his heavenly dwelling here on earth. So his courts, his house, The temple was the place of God's special presence, his place of his special protection, and his place of special permanence on earth. And the psalmist says, that's my true home. That's where I belong, a place where all my being is praising God continually. Verse 4, happy are those who are there residing in God's house. But what does he say? He says, I'm not there. So I'm not at home. I'm filled instead with this, this yearning, this longing, this ache in my body, in my soul to be home. I feel displaced and I'm homesick. And then in verse 3, he tells us where home is and then he gives us this description of what home is in verse 3. Instead of giving us just some kind of definition, he describes it. He paints this picture for us, which is really interesting. There's a bird, a mother bird living There at the temple. And he paints this picture and he says, this is what home really is. It's like a bird, like a sparrow or a swallow. 
who finds her home up somewhere up in the courts of the temple. And she makes her nest there. She's not just flying through and passing through. She's building her home there. She stays. And do you see what it says? It says she raises her kids there. This is a good place to raise kids. It's close to the king, my king and my God, the ruler of the universe. What, is, there any, is there any safer neighborhood than that? The psalmist is saying, that's the home I long for. When I picture that, sounds like the kind of home we're all longing for in Orange County. Doesn't it? A place to belong, a place to stay, to be permanent, a place that's safe, a good place to raise kids. The psalmist is saying, that's what home is. But he's saying there's only one place all this can be found. It's not in the suburbs. It's not in Orange County. Happy are those who reside at your house. That's where home really is with God in his house. The Bible teaches that this is everyone's true home. That we're all homesick, that we all have this yearning, this longing, and this ache for home that no home here can cure. We're all house hunting. Our family loves HGTV. My kids got really mad at me because we missed the deadline to apply for the 2019 HGTV dream home that was in Montana, which was a really cool home. But we love HGTV, and there's, there's all this hunting for the perfect home, the perfect house. If I just have the perfect tiny house, if I just have the perfect mountain house, if I just have the perfect house here, maybe it's the international house hunting, or maybe it's my own home on my own private island. The Bible says the reason we're house hunting is because, in one sense, our entire story is shaped by the search for home. The entire story of the Bible is about home. The Bible begins with God making a home. Genesis 1 and 2, a perfect home for us to dwell in with Him. But the home was lost. It was lost because of sin. But God promises a new home. The rest of Genesis is about this home that He promises to the patriarchs. They never get there. They end up in Egypt. God finds this homeless people in Egypt. He delivers them out of Egypt. He says, I'm going to take you to a new home, the promised land. In this home, God says, I want you to do this. He instructs his people to build this temple, this house in Jerusalem in Zion, this earthly representation of his heavenly home as a reminder of his presence, his permanence, and his protection. But because of his people's unfaithfulness and sin, how does the story go? God's presence leaves the temple. It's destroyed. The people are driven from the promised land, and now they're in exile, homeless again. It's into this situation that Jesus comes, and he says, I am the true temple. I am the way back home, and I've come to show you what home looks like, and the way there. And how does the Bible end? In Revelation 21 and 22, the Bible ends with Jesus 
making a new home for us to dwell in, in with him forever. A new creation where home really is. The Bible says we are all homesick until we get there. That homesickness we feel is the memory of the home we lost, and it's the call of God to come back home. Think of it like this. This was the best illustration I could think of this uh, this morning to describe it. I think of um, being a guest in somebody else's home, and they've invited you to stay in their home, and it is a dream house. The owner owns the house, pays the bills, fills the home with the best food, all the best entertainment, the coziest bed. You've got a pool. You've got a jacuzzi. You've got a security system. You're safe. It's spacious. Everything you want. Can you imagine the guest saying to the owner of the home, I love this home. This is my dream home. There's just one thing. Can you leave? And never come back? You have some rules. You have some ways that you've asked me to do things in order to live in this house that I, it just doesn't jive with me. It's not my thing. So I don't want to live here with you. The owner of the home would probably say, well, if that's how you feel, you leave. (laughs) And I stay in my home. Friends, we've all said this to God. We've said, thank you for all this good stuff, but can you leave? And God has had to say to us, no, but if that's how you feel, you'll have to leave. But you will never forget this house. You will never forget this house, and one day you'll come back. You'll be homesick until you do. One of my favorite quotes of all time from one of my favorite authors of all time, C.S. Lewis. He described this feeling, this story like this. I have the quote for you on the slide. He said, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Every human desire, even every desire of the soul, it has an object. He says, we were made with the desire to eat. There's food. He says, in in the larger context here, he says, we were made uh, for a desire for relationship. There's people. We were made uh, for a desire uh, with sexual desire, and there's such a thing as sex. He says, it's the same thing with our homesickness. We long for Her perfect home. But if this world is all there is and ever was, why is there a nostalgia? Why is there this longing for this far-off home that is our true home? Lewis says it's because there is a true home. And our our yearning, our longing, our ache for this home is like this homing device that God has put within our souls and planted planted within us to call us and to lead us back. To him. Happy are those who know where home really is. They are home with God. They dwell and live with him. But what about those who aren't there yet? 
Are we just stuck in homesickness and unhappiness until heaven and the new creation? Is that what the Bible teaches? Psalm 84 says no. There's another group of people who are happy. There's those who are in God's house fully and finally, but there's another group of happy people. Who are they? Verse 5. It's all those who go on the journey back home. Happy are the people whose hearts are set on pilgrimage. Happy are the pilgrims. What kind of pilgrimage is he referring to? We've been saying the Psalms, all the Psalms follow certain patterns. There's categories and types of Psalms. This Psalm 84 is classified as one of the Psalms of Zion. There are multiple Psalms of Zion. These songs of Zion are songs and prayers written for people who were on the, the literal, actual journey, on the way in a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the temple to worship. There were three yearly feasts throughout the year. All Israelites were required to tend. Those, those who weren't living in Jerusalem had to travel, had to take a pilgrimage to get there. So using the language of this actual pilgrimage, the psalmist is describing the spiritual journey, home to God. And this image, it's so important, it's so crucial to understand Christianity and the Christian life. Christianity, the Christian life, is not a static thing. It's not a one-time decision. It's a setting of the heart on a pilgrimage, on a journey that lasts our entire lives. Verses 5 through 7 describe this. Happiness is a matter of what we set our hearts on. Is our heart set on a journey? Is our heart set on a pilgrimage? Is, or is our heart set on staying put? This week I picked up a book. The, the title was so intriguing to me I just had to get it. It was written by an economist and a theologian, Brian Fickert and Kelly Capich. The title of the book is Becoming Whole. The subtitle is what caught my attention and caused me to have to buy this book. It said this, why the opposite of poverty isn't the American dream. And that caught my attention. I said, what are, they, what are they saying here? I haven't read the whole book, but I've read the beginning. And they begin the book with a section called The Paradox of Unhappy Growth. And in this chapter, they analyze how in the United States, wealth, Life expectancy, security, opportunity, choice, all kinds of good things are all more abundant than ever. All the things you would think would make for a great home, a great place to belong and dwell and be content and find happiness. They said all this is on the rise, but happiness is on the decline. And so they ask why? Why is loneliness, restlessness, stress, and anger all on the rise? All the emotions we've been looking at in this series are all on the rise. We should be more at home and more happy than ever, but we're not. Why is that? Psalm 84, 5 says, here's the reason. Our hearts are set on the wrong thing. The more our heart is set on happiness here, this is the paradox, the less we have it. The more our heart is set on the journey home to God, the more we have happiness, even here. And so Psalm 84 says, our homesickness is meant to lead us to a decision of the heart where we say, my home, my true home is not here. I am a pilgrim on the way home. 
I am not a permanent resident. Jesus is not my way to the American dream. He's my way out of the American dream to something far better. This inward resolve, this commitment can completely change how we handle the times and the seasons that normally and usually will rob us of our happiness. That's what the psalm goes on to describe in verses 6 and 7. It says there, when the pilgrims pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a source of spring water. What is the valley of Baca? Well, Baca is likely um, a wordplay on the Hebrew word for tears, and this is describing the valleys of suffering. This is describing the wilderness journey, times of dryness and difficulty and barrenness. Verse 6 is saying, if your heart is set on the right thing, even suffering, even tears, even the wilderness can't take away your true happiness. Instead, these times can make you stronger in all the most important ways. They strengthen your heart, your character, your trust to keep going on the journey. He says they go from strength to strength. There's a reality here set alongside a promise. The reality is the journey will be hard, expect it. It will be hard. Life is hard. But there is a promise set on top of that. God promises to provide everything we need to make it. Do you see how verse 7 ends? They go from strength to strength. Each one makes it to the end. They will appear before God home in Zion. Now, verses 8 and 9. These were a puzzle to me, a mystery to me. I wondered, what what are they doing here? Look at verses 8 and 9 with me. What I realized is that these verses show us why we can live with confidence in that promise, that we will make it home. This is the only direct prayer in the Psalms. Psalms are prayers, but here is the only prayer given for the journey. What is it? Lord God of armies, hear my prayer. Listen, God of Jacob. Consider our shield, God. Look on the face of your anointed one. So here's the one prayer he has. It's his one direct request. The one thing that if God answers, he knows he'll make it home. The one prayer that he's praying for strength. And he says, consider your shield. Look on the face of your anointed. He doesn't say, consider me. And look on my face. Consider your shield, your anointed. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the king of Israel. At this time for the psalmist, the journey to God's house would not be safe, would be not, not be a safe journey to take without the king protecting the way. And the king having God's favor and God's blessing. In the Old Testament, when the king was not faithful, the journey to the temple wasn't safe, and the temple would fall over and over again into disrepair. It became a house of judgment, not a house of favor and blessing. So what's going on with this prayer? This prayer is pointing us to the one thing. If it's true, that can give us strength to get through the valleys and the wilderness. And that is this, if we have a king who will keep us safe, who will shield us from danger, and if we have a king whose face God always looks upon with favor 
and blessing and delight. And the message of the gospel is, we do have such a king. His name is Jesus, God's anointed one. In John 14, we already read a portion of that in the worship service this morning. Jesus is talking to his disciples about home. He says, don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If not, I would have told you. I'm going away to prepare a place for you. If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again, take you to myself, so that where I am, you may be also. You know the way to where I'm going. And here's how it goes. Here's, here's the rest of the story. Thomas is there. He says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What is Jesus saying here in, in John 14? I've come to bring you back to the Father's house. There's a place for you there. I am preparing it for you. And I'm going to take you back there with me. You all know the way to get there. Thomas says, we don't. Where are you going? Where's the way? And Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father through me. No one gets home except through me. But everyone gets home to the Father who comes through me. That's strength. That's the king who makes a safe way for us home. This is right before Jesus dies. He says, I want to be clear to you, here's the way home. At the cross, what's about to happen, I, I will become your shield against sin, against evil and death. I've made a safe way home for all who believe. The face of God that's always been turned to me in delight and joy and happiness will be turned away from me in judgment so that God's face will never be turned away from you who come through me. How does this give us strength? Friends, when we are weak in the wilderness, when we are suffering and discouraged on the journey, here is the prayer. The prayer is, God, help me not look at me. Consider Jesus and look at him and help me to look at him, to behold his face and to be strengthened. He's the way home. Happy are those who know where home really is. Happy are those who go on the journey, on the way home. And there's one more thing. And this, this is the thing that opens up all kinds of practical applications. I don't have time to get in all of them this morning, but it's the rest of the psalm, verses 10 through 12. There, the psalm concludes by the psalmist saying, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand anywhere else. I would rather stand at the threshold of the house of God. Just be there on the doorway than be in the tents and live in the tents of wicked people. And he goes on to describe God. Do you see there? He describes God as everything home should be. He's a sun. He's warmth. He's provision. He's a shield. He's safety. He grants favor and honor or grace and glory, acceptance and welcome 
He's not stingy. He doesn't withhold good things for all who walk with integrity. God is home. Now, let me, let me just ask you this. What, what is he doing here? This is, this is his song. This is a song he's singing on the journey, if you can imagine that. Why would somebody need to sing this song? Why would somebody need to say these words? Well, if you can picture yourself on this journey, or if you can be with these pilgrims on the journey to Jerusalem, they say, okay, another day on the journey. Maybe it is a, a day that passes through the valley. It's dry, it's difficult. Another day of walking. And you say, oh, look, there's a nice city right over there. Look, it has walls, and there's people there, and maybe that's, maybe I should just stop and stay there. Oh, look, there's a settlement over there. There's a village full of tents of people. They look happy and content. Maybe I should just dwell there. Maybe I should just give up on the journey. And he says, wait, no. Remember, one day, one day in God's house is better than a thousand in my dream home. I would rather just be in getting a glimpse at the doorway in God's house. That's better than living anywhere else. You see what he's doing? He's remembering what home will be like. He remembers nothing can even come close to comparing to his true home in God. And this is one of the main things that should happen in worship, personal worship and corporate worship. We remember what home will be like. We tell ourselves what home will be like. And in, in worship, God gives us little glimpses, little tastes, little previews of home, almost like by faith we're standing at the door and we're looking in. We say, if that's true, if that's real, that's better than anything here. One pastor said it like this, worship is the means by which we renew our longing for true home. A few final practical applications. When I remember what home will be like, that means I let go of trusting that anything here will be home. The psalmist says, I'm letting go of anything else, of trusting in any home here, and I'm trusting in you. I trust you with all my ache, with all my yearning, with all my homesickness. In this life of faith, of trusting God, the conclusion to the psalm says, happiness is not the goal, but happiness is the byproduct. Happy is the person who trusts in you. And this kind of worship and faith is what frees us up to live lives of mission. It's what frees our hearts up to be people of generosity and justice. Let me explain that. You may have heard it said that Christians can be so heavenly-minded that they're no earthly good, that you're just always thinking about, well, my home is, is yet to come, my home is out there, so what good is it to invest here? I would like to suggest to you that the reverse is true. Those who remember what their true home will be like can be here and now the most earthly good. How so? 
When we know that the gospel promises a welcome and a place in our true home with God, in the new creation, then we're not enslaved to building our homes now. We're not driven and consumed by the illusion of our own personal American or Orange County dream and absorbed in our own pursuit of happiness. So we can use our lives now to give others a glimpse of what true home is like, of where true happiness is found. So people... People who know they have a better home waiting. They don't see their homes now. The homes you live in now that you and I live in are not places to hoard our stuff and amass the tokens of our happiness. They're not places for us to go and hide out from a a difficult world that is suffering and dark. No. They become places of hospitality where we open up our lives and our homes and our stuff in order to give people glimpses of what home will one day be like. So we become the best neighbors, the best people at welcoming the stranger, those who are the most hospitable. We can say, come come home with me. You'll find welcome. You'll find rest. Last application, people who know they have a better home waiting are free to use their time and resources and homes not for themselves, but for those in this world who have no home or who have lost their home. As we've shared, one of our goals this year is to relaunch Trinity's Compassion Ministry. As I was working on on this sermon this week and thinking about it and meditating on it, I was thinking about the target areas we identified as a compassion ministry. We identified the homeless, the refugee, the widows, and the orphans as as those groups to whom we feel called to serve. All those groups, what do they have in common? They don't have homes. They don't have home. As those who know what our home will be like, we can be freed up to, with compassion, open up our lives, our time, to meet those who are there in the valley of Baca suffering and say, we want to give you a taste of home. That's all I can go through right now. There's many more applications of this. If our home and our happiness is found in Jesus, he is the way home. He is our true home. And in him, we find the life we were made to live. Amen. It's true. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you for the gift of homesickness. Thank you for the yearning that we feel. Thank you for the frustration that we experience that nothing here can quite satisfy our desire and our longing to be home because you want us to come truly home. And I pray this morning, if our hearts are restless, if they're yearning, if they're aching, if we're in the valley, strengthen us. Remind us that we can trust there is a home And you have made a way there for us.
And in your promise, may we find a return to happiness. May we let go of all the false dreams of happiness and find, find true and abiding happiness in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.